DW Inside Europe. Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. On today's programme, Rocky Road. Bosnia has a new regional government, but trouble lies ahead. Minority in the spotlight. Turkey's Alevi community rally around their candidate. Coronation countdown. Britain gets out its bunting. And then there's this. Erotic fiction. A second novel with one passage that has a rather sharp focus on the derriere, or rather, putting it into political terms, what's between the centre-right and the centre-left of the derriere. Keep listening to Inside Europe and all, I promise, will be revealed. In Bosnia and Herzegovina, regional governments are vital. Because of the way the country was set up in the aftermath of ethnic conflict in the early 1990s, the national government is weak, with power being distributed between the Federation of Bosnia and Herzegovina, which is shared by Bosniaks and Croats, and the ethnic Serb Republika Srpska. But until this week, the Federation hadn't had a fully functioning government since 2018, due to a deadlock among squabbling ethno-nationalist parties. So you might have thought that in that context, an intervention by the International High Representative to break the deadlock would be welcomed. But instead, it's caused consternation and protests, as our Balkans correspondent Guy Delaunay reports. Another protest in front of the office of the High Representative in Bosnia's capital, Sarajevo. Rallies like this have become a regular feature in recent weeks, with people expressing their concerns about the interventionist approach of the current High Representative, Christian Schmidt. I want to send a message to Schmidt that he didn't help us at all, says this man. It would be better if he wasn't there. High representatives receive huge salaries and they've only complicated our situation, he adds. The crowd are particularly unhappy about a pair of Mr Schmidt's interventions. The first came after polls closed on election night last October. The high representative imposed changes to the election law, which he said would ensure a functioning government in the Federation region. Critics said the changes actually favoured one of the main ethno-nationalist parties, the Croat HDZ. The imposition in October was widely seen as inappropriate and even uh, anti-democratic in many ways. Valerie Perry is based in Sarajevo with the Democratization Policy Council think tank. It really frustrated people because it was seen as the international community and in particular the countries in the West, uh, the US, the UK and the EU, basically encouraging or at least abetting a process of engineering democracy as opposed to actually trying to see and cultivate and support a genuine uh, bottom-up uh, democracy. Despite that intervention, the Federation government didn't get its act together. Instead, the HDZ and the largest Serb party cooperated with smaller non-nationalist parties to exclude the largest Bosniak Muslim party, the SDA. The only problem was they needed the approval of the Bosniak vice president, and he was a member of the SDA. The standoff lasted for months before Mr. Schmidt intervened again. Now the will of the voters, as expressed in the October elections, must not be ignored. 
So the Federation now has a functioning government for the first time in five years. And Christian Schmidt told me it was crucial that he took action. This is toxic in a time of um, candidacy status for Bosnia-Herzegovina to European Union and will the um, security uncertainty in the region about uh, the impact of the Ukraine war. So I think uh, seven months after uh, the election having taken place, we have to try uh, to get a break. In terms of the use of your bomb powers and the interventions, there has, of course, been criticism, as you'd expect, uh, not just with this decision, but with the intervention you made on election night in October. People saying it's anti-democratic. This is an extraordinary measure. It should not be necessary to repeat. I only want to take over government responsibility in this country. I'm just, um, uh, let me say, the fallback position. With the new government sworn in, perhaps there'll be progress. But Valerie Perry says that Bosnians need a different kind of international intervention. People are frustrated to see that the issues on which Schmidt has chosen to use the bond powers is on tinkering with the rules to give the parties what they want, rather than, for example, strengthening legislation that would make it easier for corruption cases to be prosecuted, rather than a host of changes that are needed and have long been recognized as needed in the country to strengthen accountability and governance, but which are always put to the side. But that's not likely to happen, bearing in mind Mr. Schmidt told me he doesn't want to take over the government of Bosnia, which means he's likely to remain in an awkward position, criticised both for the interventions he makes and those he doesn't. Guy Delaunay, DW, Ljubljana. We move to Turkey now, where with presidential elections only just a week away, all eyes are on the main opposition candidate, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, and with him, Turkey's Alevi minority. In openly speaking about his Alevi background, Kılıçdaroğlu has broken a political taboo. Alevis are a progressive Islamic sect, which for centuries has been the target of violence and discrimination. From Istanbul, Dorian Jones reports on what is seen as a major and potentially dangerous political gamble. İlk oyunu verecek olan sevgili evlatlarım. Ben Aleviyim. Presidential candidate Kamal Kılıçdaroğlu addresses voters in a video that goes viral on social media. For the first time, he talks about his Alevi religious faith and says society should treat all people's beliefs equally. Such admissions are rare in Turkish politics, as Alevism, a sect of Islam, has suffered centuries of prejudice and discrimination by the Sunni Muslim majority. Ishtar Gözaydın is an expert on religion and politics. The Alevis in this society have been suffering since the 16th century as an ethnic and religious group. They've been discriminated. Uh, there's a stigma uh, for the Alevi identity by the Sunni understanding. It's a different uh, interpretation of Islam than the Sunni understanding. The rituals are different, the interpretation is different, the philosophy is different. So the hardcore uh, Sunni ones do perceive it as a heretical uh, interpretation.
Alevism is a mystical belief that combines religions, cultures, and ideas. It's rooted in Islam, Sufism, and some traditions of shamanism. Alevis pray in jamevis rather than mosques, worshiping through dance. Unlike most interpretations of Islam, there is no separation of men and women in prayer, and women aren't obliged to wear religious headscarves. Alevis have been repeatedly victims of sectarian violence in Turkey. In 1993, a religious mob chanting "Kill the non-believers" burned down a hotel hosting an Alevi cultural festival in the city of Sivas, killing 37. The violence continues to this day. Salami Saratash, head of Istanbul's Kartal Jemevi, was attacked last year by a sectarian mob. He welcomes Kılıçdaroğlu's video. This video has brought a lot of relief to our society. At least now, people can talk more openly about their Alevi identity. We want our children to live in this country in safety. We want our children to live in this country as equals. As this ceremony ends at the Kartal Jemevi, worshippers like Elvan Özdemir also welcome Kılıçdaroğlu's move. It's been years since Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu has talked about being an Alevi, so I think this is a very positive revelation and declaration. It's very good for our country and for our Alevis. The government has been racist, sectarian, and has disregarded us for years. Not everyone is so enthusiastic. This video on social media attacks Kılıçdaroğlu, accusing him of seeking to divide the nation and saying there is only one interpretation of Islam. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan often makes thinly disguised attacks on Kılıçdaroğlu's Alevi identity, in a move seen as seeking to consolidate his Sunni religious base. Until now, Kılıçdaroğlu's faith was widely considered an electoral handicap among religious voters. However, he heads an alliance of religious and nationalist parties, and some observers say Turkish society is changing. Osman Sert is a director of the Panorama TR research company. It was very important in the country, but nowadays, if you look at the uh, militative party, the opposition's alliance, you know. The Islamists and the nationalists and the secularists and otherwise and the Sunnis are all together, and and it means that it is not too much important as it was uh, maybe ten years ago. But at the end of the day, it is very difficult to see that people will go to the ballot box and they will be voting for, and it is very difficult to understand for which reason they are voting in favor of Mr. Kılıçdaroğlu or Erdogan. It is not an easy thing. Ben Aleviyim. Kılıçdaroğlu's video is seen as a political gamble, but with over a hundred million hits, it certainly had an impact, says religion and politics expert Gözaydın. Thinking about the stigmas that the Alevi society has faced up to this time, this is a very, very courageous and a very important step. In an increasingly close election, whether Kılıçdaroğlu's gamble will pay off remains to be seen. But whatever the outcome, some observers say he's already changed the country's political landscape.
Doreen Jones, DW, Istanbul. Just one more week to go before Turkey goes to the polls. To make sure that you don't miss our coverage of these crucial elections, you can, of course, subscribe to our podcast. I am Kate Laycock in Germany, and you are listening to Inside Europe. Not a fan of the British monarchy? Thinking of protesting King Charles' coronation this weekend? Well, don't. That at least was the message that potential protesters were sent when the UK's Home Office's Police Powers Unit issued letters warning about new criminal offences to prevent disruption that have been rushed into law. As of this week, protesters blocking major infrastructure could face 12 months in prison with six-month sentences for anyone found locking onto objects or buildings. If, on the other hand, you want in on the first coronation ceremony since the King's mother, Queen Elizabeth, was crowned way back in 1953, then please, ladies and gentlemen, step on up. Lucy Taylor reports from the UK. We're cooking pork steaks with uh, mash, carrots and green beans. Anne has made a lovely apple crumble with custard, which people, they love their custard. In a small church hall in the north of England, volunteers are treating an over-70s lunch club to a feast fit for a king. There's bunting, union flag napkins and red, white and blue cakes to take home. 70 years since the nation had the chance to welcome a new monarch. And unlike most of the rest of the country, many of the diners here do remember the last time. Sat in my mother's front room, it was packed with all the neighbours because she was the only one with the television on the, on the road. At the time, they were fashionable for children. They had a, a little replica of the coronation coach with all the little horses and soldiers, you know. But I didn't, I didn't get one. <laughs> I went to my next-door neighbour with my parents and they had a nine-inch television. And honestly, you know, you couldn't see anything. So the following week, my parents took me to the pictures where we saw it in colour, and that was fantastic. My job was to get my scouts together to get up at the top of a high hill and light a bonfire. Now, it was pouring with rain at the time, so you can imagine that it was rather difficult to get the thing sparkling up. Eventually, we did. So that, that was my coronation day <laughs> with the scouts <laughs> at the top of a hill in the rain. <laughs> Everybody you know, was involved and... Uh, wanted to celebrate, you know. Uh, I'm not sure that that'll be quite as as popular in today. Though it will be spectacular, we shall watch it. <laughs> we shall be glued to the television. <laughs> this time around, King Charles is said to have wanted a toned-down version of the pageantry to reflect the current cost-of-living crisis and the changing times. 
His invited guests include charity workers from across the country, and he's asked people to use their extra public holiday to volunteer in the community. But even so, it will be a lavish affair, costing hundreds of millions of pounds. More than a hundred global heads of state will attend the ceremony at Westminster Abbey, which will be live-streamed on TV and on screens around the country. Obviously, we live in a very different environment in all sorts of ways from 1953. Um, but nonetheless, I, I think that an occasion like this can be something to do with community cohesion, you might say. Bringing Geoffrey Hardboard is from Sheffield Cathedral, which will host a big screen in a weekend of its own special coronation services. The huge outpouring of national mourning and grief that there was over the late Queen did show, I think, that actually, despite what some people say, and I, I take all the arguments about the possible abolition of the monarchy and how much it costs and all this sort of thing, nonetheless, it still has an established place in the hearts of many people of all sorts of origin within our country. The royal family has had its challenges in recent years, from allegations against Prince Andrew to a public falling out with Prince Harry and protests against royal visits in other parts of the Commonwealth. In the UK, polls still show high levels of support for the monarchy, but less so among younger generations. In another church hall, a troop of young Girl Scouts, called Brownies here, are working towards a special coronation badge. And we're making stained glass windows out of tissue paper. And even for these nine and ten-year-olds, the crowning of a new monarch feels like the end of an era. I liked the Queen, but sadly she's passed away. Um, I think she did a very good job. I quite miss the Queen because like, there hasn't been many queens, so yeah, I quite liked it having a queen. OK, so just before we go home today, we are going to learn a song about the King. From ancient prayers and rituals to street parties and scones, the coronation weekend will reflect traditions passed down through generations. Monday at nine, the king, his wife and son, Emmanuel. The king will aim to show that his 1,000-year-old monarchy still has relevance in a country very different to when his mother was crowned a lifetime ago. Friday at six, the king... Lucy Taylor, DW, in the UK. Came to me at home to hear the latest scandal after they were fed the young Emmanuel said and if you thought that Inside Europe could not get more colourful than that, then actually this week you would be wrong, as I found out when in conversation with our Paris correspondent, John Lawrenson. Schadenfreude may be a German word, but this week it seems to be a French emotion. Yes, there's been this week in France quite a lot of pleasure taken in the discomfort of the Minister of Finance, Bruno Le Maire, always impeccably besuited Le Maire, the slightly bland, blonde, blue-eyed good looks of the boy who's always been top of the class. When Bruno Le Maire walks into the room, it's as if you're in the presence of the French elite itself. He's so polished, he almost twinkles. It therefore came as something of a surprise to um, many French people to discover that the minister in charge of the economy, while steering his way through uh, the very rough waters of a retirement pension reform that's put millions on the streets, uh, has been writing erotic fiction, a second novel with one passage that has a rather sharp focus on the derriere 
or rather, putting it into political terms, what's between the centre-right and the centre-left of the derriere. As the Huffington Post put it, Bruno Le Maire has been writing about an anus and people weren't ready for that. I'm not sure I'm ready for that either. Um, I'm, I'm going to skip swiftly on to my next question, which was, uh, well, it, it was about style, in fact, because uh, I understand that it is not only the content, but also the style of this passage, which has been circulating on uh, Twitter that has caused eyebrows to be raised in a very Gallic fashion. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's quite um, it's quite straightforward. And actually, we shouldn't be that surprised because um, in his first novel... Yeah, yeah. sorry, John, because we should say, in all fairness to Monsieur Le Maire, we should say that he is already a noted author and that his book, Des Hommes d'Etat, even you know, won a prestigious award. So the writing hasn't come out of nowhere. Absolutely, absolutely. But in his first novel, we find at one point Monsieur Le Maire in the bath um, being given... Uh, a helping hand by his wife, Pauline, in the new book called American Fugue, uh, which is about two brothers whose lives are turned upside down when they uh, go to Cuba to attend a concert by the pianist Vladimir Horowitz. There is this one scene which is pretty explicit, it is true. Stylistically, if you want my opinion, it's not that bad. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the old adage is that France is the country where everyone is a philosopher, but it seems that in terms of the French Twitter sphere, at least it is a country where everyone is a literary critic all of a sudden. But uh, some of uh, of these comments from the French Twitter sphere have been um, enlightening, perhaps even helpful. Some authors, for example, um, providing Monsieur Le Maire with uh, tips and helpful suggestions. Yes, I mean, there have been a couple of quite nice, interesting literary ideas. I mean, one was a, a prize-winning author who was asked to write a better version of the now famous Le Maire Anus scene. And it, it's true, it, it was pretty good stuff. And then there was um, someone who asked Chat GPT to write about pension reform in the style of a Bruno Le Maire sex scene. <laughs> which had lots of uh, good puns, you know, the importance of filling the dark hole in France's finances and so on. I mean, this this is uh, this is this is obviously hilarious, but it's also a serious point, isn't it? Because um, Bruno Le Maire isn't just any old French politician; he is France's minister for the economy, finance, and recovery. And this is at a time when the government is facing unprecedented levels of public dissent over its restructuring of the French pension system. I mean, how damaging is this? Yeah, um, it's not good timing, is it? Um, the, no the novel came out just hours before uh, the credit rating agency Fitch downgraded France's debt worthiness. Um, one left-wing MP said it was uh, inadmissible that at a time when the French are so worried about inflation, uh, Le Maire should spend even one minute writing erotic scenes. To which Mr. Le Maire replied that some people garden, some people go hiking. I write, he said, and he said that he, he would write what he likes. Uh, but then but there is a bit of fiddling while Rome burns about this, isn't there? Pension reform, woe, inflation and so on, as you say. 2023, you could call it France's annus horribilis. 
Our Paris correspondent, John Lawrence, and there, and much as I would like to leave that line standing, I am obliged for format reasons at this point to remind you that I am Kate Laycock in Germany, and you are listening to Inside Europe. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. Coming up in the next half hour. When politicians or or political leaders, you know, attack journalists and the media, and and when they see them as enemies rather than the backbone of democracy, they send a very dangerous signal to the citizen, to the public, because they suggest that journalists can be attacked with impunity. Reporters Without Borders releases its World Press Freedom Index. We'll be finding out how Europe's measuring up, as well as hearing from Russian journalists in exile. Also on the show, the havoc wreaked by fracking in the Netherlands and touring the topography of torture in Berlin. That's all still to come. Broadcasting from Germany. This is Inside Europe. We begin with breaking news from the UK. Britain has approved the extradition of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange to the United States. I want to turn to Greece now, where the government is facing mounting pressure over a phone-tapping scandal. The US journalist Evan Gershkovich has appeared in a Moscow court to appeal. A journalist and activist in Belarus has been sentenced to eight years in prison for plotting unrest. As is its custom, the NGO Reporters Without Borders marked World Press Freedom Day on May 3rd this week with the publication of its World Press Freedom Index. The index, which ranks countries according to their level of press freedom, reveals an alarming picture. Globally, the situation for journalists is considered bad in seven out of ten countries, and this is reflected in the sea of countries coloured red and dark orange in the interactive map that accompanies the report. In Europe, the colour palette of that map is rather more varied. Russia is, of course, red, but with the notable exception of the Baltic states, the rest of the eastern half of Europe isn't looking too healthy either. I turned to Reporters Without Borders' Junie Majazak to help me make sense of it. Censorship is systemic in this area. The Kremlin's propaganda machine is deploying very fast. And the Russian invasion has overshadowed the entire region, and especially uh, Belarus, which is now under Russia's control. The persecution of independent media outlets and journalists is really unbelievable. 
former opposition journalist Raman Pratasevich was sentenced to eight years in prison. Um, maybe if we move a bit to the Western Balkan region, I can say a few words about Serbia. Oh, yes, please, because Serbia has really slipped up, uh, moved down the index 12 points, I think. Yes, so, so Serbia is the only Western Balkan country whose positions uh, worsen in, uh, in our index this year. Uh, it has uh, recorded the biggest drop, as you said, uh, 12 uh, places. Uh, the main factors are, first, the pro-government media, which disseminates a lot of Russian propaganda, and the fact that in their everyday life, journalists are attacked, including by the prime minister, the president, and also the fact that hardly any legislative measures have been taken or were taken to improve press freedom. You've talked about Serbia and we can really see there that what's happening in Russia is spilling out into uh, other countries, Serbia being the most, uh, I think, egregious example. Ukraine itself, though, is a really interesting and surprising case. Um, I mean, when a country is at war, you would expect its press freedom index ranking to go down. But that's not what's happened in Ukraine. I mean, it's still not great, but it has gone from 106 to 79 on this index. What on earth is happening there? How's that possible? It is surprising, given the fact, as you said, that the country is at war. Of course, the safety indicator is very bad. But our index is not limited to the security issue. In a way, journalists have a much greater freedom. The war and the spirit of national unity has reduced the oligarchs' hold on the media. And a new media law was adopted in late 2022. But don't get me wrong, the press freedom situation in Ukraine is still problematic and far from being at the level of what it is expected for an EU member state. That's really fascinating. Um, just coming back to this wonderful interactive map that is released along with the World Press Freedom Index report. If we move west across this map, we see that as we get into Western Europe, the colour scheme gets much gentler. We're into yellows uh, in, in the Nordic countries and in the Baltics, we're actually into greens. Uh, so it's, it's a much more sort of complex picture in a way. Doesn't mean that all is well, though. What are the main dangers that you see to press freedom in Western Europe at the moment? It is important to recall that the EU remains the safest region in the world for journalists and the one with the best press freedom record. We have to keep that in mind. The growing mistrust, the growing animosity towards journalists on social media, but also in the real world, is a big concern. And this trust is often fueled or prompted by authorities. When politicians or, or political leaders, you know, attack journalists and the media and, and when they see them as enemies rather than the backbone of democracy, they send a very dangerous signal to the citizen, to the public, because they suggest that journalists can be attacked with impunity. Several journalists have been targeted by the spyware predator. 
and spied on by the Greek intelligence services. And for us, it's clearly the biggest press freedom violation in the European Union in 2022. Looking now at an EU level, there there is quite a lot of good news here, really, isn't there? Because the rankings among EU countries have narrowed and there are also twice as many countries that have risen in the 2023 index as there are that have fallen. Now, the EU is currently discussing legislation which is aimed at establishing common press freedom standards across the block. Uh, I know, Julie, that this is an area of expertise for you. I mean, is, is this something to be hopeful about? So the European Commission put on the table a European Media Freedom Act last September. It hasn't been adopted by the European Parliament and the Council of the EU yet, so it's maybe too early to claim victory. But the European Commission proposal is clearly a step in the right direction to protect press freedom and media pluralism in the EU. For example, uh, it aims to guarantee editorial independence, to prevent political and economic interferences, including in public media services. It also prohibits member states from surveilling journalists with Power, and we just talked about the case in Greece. It tries to protect online media content from over-moderation by platforms. What is really crucial is to secure the right to reliable information, to promote trustworthy journalism, and to oblige platforms to do so, and as well as uh, to protect the EU information space from authoritarian regimes, uh, propaganda and disinformation. Cautious optimism there from Junie Majazak, Head of Reporters Without Borders, Brussels office. To find out how your country fared in the World Press Freedom Index and to check out that incredibly helpful interactive map that accompanies it, go to rsf.org. And our focus on press freedom continues in our next report, which comes to us from the Baltic nation of Latvia, ranked 16 in the World Press Freedom Index. Its neighbour, Russia, is now ranked 164th out of 180 countries. And for many Russian journalists fleeing persecution and censorship in the wake of Vladimir Putin's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, Latvia was an obvious exile destination. Our reporter, Ben Batka, has been in the capital, Riga, where he's been checking back in with some of the Russian journalists that he first met last year, shortly after their arrival. On a Saturday morning in late April, a group of Russian reporters could be seen walking through a tranquil pine forest not far from Latvia's capital, Riga. They were neither on assignment nor did they come for networking. The aim of the walk, in fact, was to get a much-needed break from journalism. For a couple hours, they switched off their cameras, tucked away their notepads, and instead engaged in breathing exercises and other mindfulness practices intended to help them recover from trauma, manage stress, and build resilience. There are some recommendations to stop the information digest for just uh, two hours a day. That is impossible, unfortunately. Why, why is it so hard? We need to know all about the war in Ukraine and uh, about this crime, what is happening. 
we need to talk with our audience in Russia. Uh, just uh, every moment. Kirill Kozemyakin, a journalist with the Russian independent news outlet Pskov Gubernia Media, arrived in Riga last August. A sense of guilt for not having done more to prevent his home country's war against Ukraine and the expectations about covering it weigh on Kozemyakin and many of his compatriots in exile. Some suffer from insomnia, others have suicidal thoughts or grapple with PTSD. When the first Russian reporters forced into exile by Putin's war started arriving in Riga in late February last year, They spent the first weeks and months finding accommodation, schools for their children and adjusting to their new lives. Now, more than a year later, they use almost every waking hour to report on Russia and the war in Ukraine. There's so much to do now. I work 18 hours a day. We cover tons of court hearings and verdicts, anti-war protests. We try to follow everything. We also have more people working for us in Russia and volunteering for us in different European countries. Alexandra Ageva, the founder and CEO of SOTA.Vision, is one of the journalists we spoke to last year. SOTA is one of the last remaining independent Russian media outlets with most of its reporters still based in Russia. Ageva says she has 50 journalists there, 10 more than last year. Despite her reporters being frequently harassed and assaulted, at times temporarily jailed, and in three cases forced to flee the country. She says her team has even managed to increase the number of subscribers across SOTA's social media channels from 300,000 a year ago to around 400,000. But the future of SOTA is uncertain, and so too is Ageva's personal situation. Like most other Russian reporters in Latvian exile, she is unlikely to receive a temporary residence permit. When we spoke with prominent film critic Anton Dolin last year, he had been in Riga for just a few weeks and was struggling. So what has changed over the past 13 months, I wanted to know. Everything and nothing. Nothing, because the war is still here, he explains. Everything, because Russia slapped Dolan with a dreaded foreign agent label in December. Normally I have to, right? This material is produced by foreign agent Anton Dolan. It's like a yellow star. And many people do this. I refuse to put uh, the disclaimer uh, on my social network. And then in January, Dolan's employer, Medusa, was labeled an undesirable organization, a sanction intended to force organizations to disband and which puts its staff and financial donors at risk of significant jail time. It's much, much worse than foreign agent. For example, me, step on the soil of Russia now. I can go to prison for four years just for the fact that I published in Medusa my article about John Wick 4. Aside from Medusa, around two dozen other Russian media organizations and their staff went into exile in Latvia, including major ones like Novaya Gazeta, The Moscow Times, TV Rain and Echo of Moscow. This EU member state is home to 1.9 million people, of whom roughly a quarter are ethnic Russians. A co-working space in central Riga with desks, meeting rooms, recording studios, and a kitchen is one of the few constants in the lives of Russian journalists living in Latvian exile. With free lunches and networking events, the space also functions as a meeting place for the community of exiles. My name is Yelena Kuznetsova and I'm 35 and I'm the editor-in-chief of the Russian version of our Latvian uh, publication Netkariga. Kuznetsova works out of this space a couple of times a week. She says she enjoys being around other journalists from different parts of Russia. It is like when you work in some media team and it is re really young, really friendly, 
quite creative. In uh, other situations, we won't have a chance to meet. Running the co-working space is the Center for Media Studies, one of four Latvian media NGOs that came together last year to create the Media Hub Riga to better support exiled media representatives. So far, the organizations have helped close to 600 media workers and their family members, mainly with language classes, short-term accommodation, food, visas, work permits, bank accounts, schooling needs, as well as medical, psychological, and emergency support. Over the past few months, they've added a tech support program, mentoring on topics such as fundraising and fighting Russian censorship, as well as podcasting and mobile journalism training. According to Gunter Sloga, director of the Baltic Center for Media Excellence, the visa situation is the most challenging issue for the exiles. The immigration process has been much slower than anybody expected. Another issue is mental health. Those people who had to leave country just in few minutes or days, uh, they have to start their life from scratch here. And another one, of course, is sustainability. How do you create your new media or really try to get back to life your old one which was existing in Russia? Many of the around 260 Russian reporters currently in Latvia have felt compelled to come up with a contingency plan due to the ongoing uncertainty, both in their homeland and in exile. Anton Dolin's plan B is to become a citizen of Israel, which he says would be a mere formality given his Jewish heritage. Uh, gives me a feeling of being secure. Every uh, Jewish person is an eternal fugitive. Uh, so I'm now a part of a bigger country of fugitives and not just a single fugitive in country which doesn't want me and my family. Kuznetsova says she's been using a coping strategy to better deal with the uncertainty. I'm not an immigrant or not a journalist in exile. I'm just a journalist who moved from Russia to Latvia and who tries hard to do their job. Ben Bartke, DW, Riga. I'm going to give that Reporters Without Borders address another plug again at this point. It is rsf.org. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. Fracked off doesn't even cover it. A court in The Hague has called a temporary halt to plans by a Dutch company to develop a new gas field under Dutch and German waters near Germany's island of Borkum. The ruling came as the Prime Minister of the Netherlands issued his first ever apology to residents of the northern Dutch province of Groningen, who have suffered for years under the consequences of earthquakes caused by natural gas extraction. Our reporter, Stefan Bas, has been following the story. The Martina Toren, or St. Martin's Tower, proudly stands as the tallest church steeple in the city of Groningen. This 16th century architectural marvel, with its brick spiral staircase and carillon bells, has survived wars and fires. And in more recent years, earthquakes. The quakes have been caused by the extraction of natural gas nearby. 
The Groningen Natural Gas Field was discovered in 1959 and is the largest in Europe. Years of extraction have caused subsidence, which in turn has led to earthquakes. The quakes have increased since the 1990s. In 2013 alone, there were 133 of them. Thousands of damaged buildings were demolished for safety reasons. As a result, children in several schools needed to have classes elsewhere. Researchers and the authorities say at least 100,000 Groningen residents have suffered damage to their properties over the last three decades. A quake even shakes this farm in the village of Middleston. It's one of the traditional brick buildings dotting the landscape. A damning parliamentary commission report says the government owes the region a debt of honor after decades of putting natural gas profits before people. Longtime Prime Minister Mark Rutte has now pledged 22 billion euros in compensation for victims and to improve the quality of life in the province. And he also apologized for many ruined lives. We kunnen all het leed uit het verleden niet wegnemen. We kunnen niet terugdraaien. We stand here cap in hand. We can't take away all the suffering from the past. We can't undo what has gone wrong since gas extraction started. But we are determined to do things differently, working closely with the people here. And that means a commitment of years, an approach for an entire generation. But quake victim Ger Waring, living in the town of Loppersum, watches Rutte's televised remarks with mixed feelings. Of course he has to go. Rutte never listened to us. But then his state secretary for Groningen has to quit too. Let's see what they'll do for us. But I don't think I'll live to see the day that the government solves the issue. Following its discovery, the natural gas field became central to the country's energy supply. A consortium including energy giants Shell and ExxonMobil extracted gas for decades. Officials say profits have delivered 363 billion euros to the Dutch Treasury since the 1960s. That money helped lay the foundation for the country's generous welfare state, while Shell and Exxon profited to the tune of about 66 billion euros. An unusually strong earthquake in 2018 saw the government promise a rapid end to oil production, which is expected by 2024 at the latest. But local authorities and quake victims say these measures are only a first step in the right direction. A visibly emotional mother, Frauke Postma Dorenbos, told the parliamentary inquiry how the earthquakes had impacted her children. Onze zoons hebben hun, uh, hun, hun puberjaren, hun tienerjaren doorgebracht um, in een hele... Our sons had to spend their teenage years in a stressful environment with very stressed parents. Both of them have experienced the mental consequences of these difficulties. Our youngest son became very depressed. 
We didn't initially realize this. He shut himself off and lived in his own world. And when I saw this later, I thought I'd failed as a mother. I was fighting for this home, but I also had to fight for my child. The natural gas field is now winding down operations. But victims fear generations will continue to suffer the material and mental consequences caused by the turmoil deep beneath Groningen's land. Stefan Bos, DW, The Netherlands. Push things back into the deep and they still will have a habit of bubbling back up again. That's an insight that the protagonist of our final story this week is all too familiar with. His name is Mohammed, and he's the creator of one of Berlin's most unique guided tour experiences. Christina Jovanovsky signed up and turned out, intrigued by the promise of seeing Berlin through the eyes of a refugee. All of the main buildings of Nazi Germany existed here. One major building that existed in this spot is the main building of the Gestapo. That's Mohammed. He's giving a tour of the city he now calls home, Berlin. But it's also a tour of his old home, Syria. Mohammed, who asked for his last name not to be used, helped create this tour called Why We're Here. Every Saturday, Syrian or Afghan refugees take people around historical landmarks in Germany's capital to highlight similarities with the countries they were forced to leave because of war. He basically systemized it in how, to a degree, Nazi Germany have done it. His specialty was interrogation. One of the most used torture devices today in Syria, it's called the German chair. Mohammed is at the site where the Nazi police detain people. He uses a moment to discuss the Syrian regime's use of violence against political dissidents. He talks about a Nazi who fled Germany after World War II. It's believed the man ended up living in Syria where he helped the authorities develop ways to torture people. Mohammed says being a guide has given him painful flashbacks. It made me choke up sometimes, like in the middle of a sentence, I feel like I can't speak anymore. Sometimes somebody will ask me a question and I'll remember a specific story that will give the feel of it. And as I'm saying it, I feel that I'm processing it live, like at that moment. Katrin Bushing is one of five participants on this rainy Saturday. Katrin says the tour made her realize the reality for refugees was different to what some of the media was presenting about them. I think that the hopeful outcome of um, tours like this, like that you're remembered of uh, what connects us as humans and yeah, how important it is to listen to people's stories and circumstances you've not lived before, like in your personal life. The idea for these tours came when Mohammed was attending another tour, focusing on places associated with the refugee rights movement in Berlin. The tour guide was Lorna Cannon. Mohammed told her he wanted to do a tour about Syria because he noticed parallels between Germany and Syria's history of dictatorship and war. He and Lorna eventually designed the Why We Are Here tour. Lorna says she hopes the tours make people realize that they're not that different to refugees. These situations happen because of chance. It just depends on where you're living. Uh, and it can happen to any of us, actually. Um, and that was the, the idea of the tour, was to sort of show people that 
um, you know, this has happened actually where you're standing right now. Mohammed and the group take shelter in a cafe next to another talking point, Checkpoint Charlie and the Berlin Wall. You go either through ISIS checkpoint or government checkpoint. And it's very essential to know which one you go through. Because you need to basically put on a persona. Like a character you need to play to be able to cross. This is where he talks about the difficulties of people crossing borders while living under authoritarianism. That is something he had to face as well. Mohammed said he bribed his way out of Syria in 2013. After reaching Libya, he eventually had to flee there as well. He ended up in Germany in 2014. This square called Gendarmenmarkt, uh, the square itself and the whole place around it, the whole neighborhood, was a place of refuge of many French refugees that came here in the 16 and 1700s. Mohammed goes on to talk about the attitudes towards refugees. He says they face hate simply for who they are and experiences they had to go through. Participants don't just hear about history, but a history that was lived by the tour guide. Mohammed says being a guide has helped him process the emotions and events he went through in a healthy way. He also hopes the tourists can combat narratives that some media have put on refugees so that their own stories are heard. How a story is powerful and who controls the story will control how people think and do things. Because I don't believe that people are all racist or all good, but a good story could make people collectively go in a direction. The power of stories in that report there by Christina Jovanovsky, bringing us to the end of this edition of Inside Europe. The address for feedback, comments or indeed ideas for future shows is insideeurope at dw.com. This programme was produced by Helen Sini with help from me, Kate Laycock and sound engineers Jürgen Kuhn and Wissam Dahman. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Bonn, Germany. <laughs>